Hello everybody and welcome to the podcast. Today I'm here with web designer and host of Awkward Marketing, Rachel K. Albers. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much. This is the best. Can you please <laughs> tell everyone like what's happening right now? Let me set the scene for you. So we've got this fancy sound setup here. We're both wearing microphones. Right? We're not, and uh, we're both wearing headsets. <laughs> we're looking at each other in the eyes. This is a real thing. I got my baby. Eyes. Thank you very much. You've got beautiful lips. Oh. Uh, <laughs> I have my baby. I'm feeding my baby right now. Uh, we're drinking wine. We got the sound guy here pretending that he's not here. We're you know we're all drinking wine. And it's, it's a real party. And it is a party. The baby's not drinking wine, but not yet. No. <laughs> not yet. Not for yeah. Okay. Anyway, so tell me about uh, awkward marketing. So I was reading your bio, and it starts with. The marketer that hates marketing. That is true. That's me. Why do you hate, hate marketing? marketing? Well, you know, I think. Um, why do I hate marketing? What a good question. And you're going to be able to hear my little one in the background here. I well, when I say I hate marketing, I hate what most people associate with marketing: the sleazy tactics, the right. the you know the get rich quick schemes that are are taught the. The manipulation, that's what I, that's what I associate with, uh, with marketing and, and so that's why I say I'm a marketer who hates marketing because so often when people hear that you're a marketer, they assume that you're doing those shady, shady shadersons. I mean, but there are so many people out there that prove them right. Well, you know, there are really, a yeah, lot of shady marketers well, out there. True. Exactly. So I'm willing to throw the good marketing under the bus by just saying I hate marketing. <laughs> in that statement so yeah is that a good hook for people do you think they trust you they're like oh okay i, I mean yeah I, it is it is a way of immediately sharing my values in kind of like a funny lighthearted way you know yeah. it's because a lot of my clients they are heart-centered entrepreneurs conscious entrepreneurs uh, business owners that are not just trying to make money they're trying to right. make the world better in some mm -hmm. way and so most people who come to me they they have this preconceived idea of marketing and they're scared of it and they don't want to do it and they're like, I just don't want right. to do this. Why? So that's kind of part of how I, yeah, it's how I build trust, but it's not just a shtick. It really is, you know, I agree with them. And so part of what I do is help my clients learn how to market in a way that doesn't feel like they're selling their soul. Right. And how, like, how do you combat that? Um, stereotype, I guess, because sometimes it's hard to chip away at that with your clients, like to get that idea of marketing that they have in their mind, like that preconceived notion, get over that with them. Um, hmm, that's a good question. I mean, I would say it's right off the bat when I'm starting a relationship with someone. So it starts with, um, you know, we're working together on their marketing and I'm kind of their lead their marketing guide. And from the very first interaction that I have with my clients, it's a unique experience from other marketers, other web designers, mm -hmm. other branding people. So I, you know, I'm honest um, right up front and I'm authentic. And, you know, like for example, if I'm in a sales call with somebody and we're talking about their brand and what they need, I'm gonna be really honest with them if they don't need my services or if they right. don't need right. as extensive of services as they, as they think they do. Or, if it's not time yet, if they've got to do a few things first, um, I'm not afraid to turn down business to have that conversation. So that's kind of just a, a 
taste of kind of the way that I approach the relationship I have with my clients. And that right there mm -hmm. lowers their resistance to the marketing right. uh, tactics that I'm going to then introduce them to and help them implement in their businesses. Right away, they trust exactly that I'm legit. I'm not trying to just sell them a bunch of stuff. I'm not nickel and diming them. And then they're like, okay, well, this marketer is not bullshit. So... Because I think it. anytime you can be honest about the situation and you can say like, no, I don't think you're ready for this or you need to do this before you, you know, and then come see me, then I think that establishes trust right away because so many people don't do that. They just want the money or the paycheck. Right. Or, and so they're just going to pull one over on you. Yeah. Yeah. Who does? I mean, I just had a conversation yesterday with someone and, um, and she was in the market for a marketing team and, you know, we had a conversation and I could just tell based on where she was at in her business and what she had done up until this point. Right. That if she and I were together, it would be, she had, she spent a lot of money and she hasn't had a ton of results. And I basically was like, listen, you and I could work together and we could do X, Y, Z, or you could do this other thing. And I kind of exactly. gave her a little prescription and I think you're going to save money. I think this is yes. going to be the right. And, and okay. So this person did not, is not going to turn into my client now. Um, but they can be a great referral source. They, you know, this, this person sells, um, like natural products. And mm -hmm. as a result of this conversation, she's like, I'm going to send you a bunch of little gifts. Well, Thank see? you for this. And that's amazing. So, yeah. So yeah. And it's just establishing like your brand, your personal brand and your word of mouth. Basically, exactly. Exactly. That's totally part of it. And when you work with small business owners, they're oftentimes trying to figure out how to allocate the small budget that they have, like between, okay, so I can pay for this marketing or I can pay for a website. And so then having that conversation with them, trying to figure out like where that's going to go. Did she just sneeze? No, she's uh, just, <laughs> a con you know, accommodating herself. I don't know what I'm trying to say. Here. <laughs> so how is it being a mompreneur? <laughs> Let's talk about that. So yeah, how about that? Um, hard. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, how I mean, listen, she? she's eight Dallas. weeks old. Okay. So who the hell eight knows? Weeks. Yeah. I don't know what's going on. Two months. Uh, yeah, exactly. you're here, you yeah, have makeup here on. Like, yeah, you, do you know what day it is? I don't. No. I don't either. So it's fine. <laughs> Um, it's, it's a little wild because, you know, I'm self-employed, I run my own business, and so I didn't really have a maternity leave. I really was working even in the hospital. I mean, I had, I had my, like, laptop set up on the little moving hospital table, and I was, like, listening to webinars while feeding oh her. Oh, my and, God. And that's not, I don't say that to glamorize it, because that wasn't the goal, it wasn't the plan to work. Yeah. yeah there was a hope that I could take a maternity leave, but you know what? I got clients, you know, the way things that worked out, it didn't happen. Right. So now the flip side of that is my, I've got my husband who does stay home and he's able to be with her most of the time today. I'm, I'm here with you. But, um, and you know, when you're self-employed, you can work whenever you want. I can work at two in the morning and I do these days, you know, I can work. Sometimes I can work when I'm feeding her. Not always, you know, it's, it can be hard. Um, and so I can work in my pajamas. I don't have a commute. I don't have to go back to work. So there's there's a trade-off in terms of I didn't get to take leave, but I do have tons of flexibility. So, yeah. I think it's been helpful for you in, like, your new mom phase to stay busy from home? Um, like uh, with work? E yeah, maybe. Maybe. Um, maybe not. It's weird because, I mean, I love, I love my work. I really do. I enjoy working. I'm... 
I'm driven. I always was like, you know, I'm not the kind of person that would want to be a stay-at-home mom. But, and, you know, I, I knew that there was a possibility that, well, when she was born, that that would shift my priorities. Mm -hmm. And, of course, it did. So there is a part of me that's like, oh, especially because, you know, newborns require a lot of attention. And mm -hmm. I was like, well, I'm going to be able to do it. I can juggle it. <laughs> now I can see why people take a majority leave. Right. Really, it is, especially for the first few months, it is a full-time job. So it's like I have two now. I've got two full-time jobs. So... I don't know, man. It's it's a wild ride. It's have wild you ride. ever taken a vacation from your business? Mm, not really. Only because, not intentionally. Um, I mean, <laughs> listen. I'm not the I'm the poster child of working too much. But um, I've taken time off because internet was out. Or a few years ago, my husband and I we went to Kenya to do nonprofit oh, cool. work. And while we were there, I was like, oh yeah, I'm gonna have one of those little routers that I can plug into my computer. I'm gonna be working while I go. Well, no, that did not happen. The The internet situation where we were in Kenya is not such that I could work. Yeah. And so I was forced to not work for a few weeks at that point, but that wasn't the plan. So I was, and then of course I had angry people when I got back. Oh, really? <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, so, because I plan, I was like, I always overestimate how much I can get uh, done while I'm, you know. Yeah. So, man, I'm just confessing my, my, my heart to you. <laughs> yeah, but this is good. Be open and honest about it. So let's talk about the beginning of your business. You started it while you were living in Mexico. Yeah. I had, so I had moved to Mexico. Uh, I had quit law school. I was in law school. I had gotten an internship in Mexico working with uh, women. And during that time realized, oh, I'm not meant to be a lawyer. So I decided to quit law school and I moved back to Mexico to continue doing the nonprofit work I was doing, but just not, you know, with not in law school. And so the truth is the way the business started, it was never this dream of, oh, I'm going to be an entrepreneur. I'm going to start my own company, whatever. Mm -hmm. It was, how do I stay in Mexico? How do I do this work with young people and women? How do I keep paying the bills every month? Right. And so I had a computer. I knew how to code. I had some background in marketing. Boom. How Let's did you, do it. Okay. So you have a theater background. You yeah. know how to code. Yeah. You had some marketing experience. Yeah. And you were working for a nonprofit, and you were a law school dropout. Yeah, yeah. Well, like, what, what, what the fuck, Rachel? <laughs> How did it all? I happen? also went to seminary briefly. What? I'd like to throw that in there. Yes, I am a seminary dropout as well. <laughs> oh my god! So how did you like? How does that work? Were you just trying to figure it out, like figure out what you wanted to do long term? You know, every time I pivoted, I really thought it. Was, I had, I had the answer. Mm. You know, I'd spent my young life thinking I was meant to be in the arts. So, I, yeah, I studied theater, um, and I got a minor in marketing, so that's where that comes in. Okay. And, uh, but then at the end of that, I realized, no, I didn't want to be an actress after years of thinking I did. And so I'm like, okay, law school, I'm going to change the world. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to do something. And I, I wanted to use my brain in a way that I felt had gone a little bit unused as an actor. And I don't say that to uh, discredit acting, but I felt... Um, like I didn't have enough creative agency right. as an actor. Like I, you know, you're, I realized too late at the end of law, uh, end of theater school, oh, you know, when you're an actor, you're kind of following someone else's lead. You're reading someone else's script. You're being directed by someone. You're in someone else's creative grip right. in many ways. So I wanted more control. So I'm like, oh, you know, as a lawyer, I can, I can, you know, I law and order, all that kind of <laughs> stuff. My dad's a litigator. So I had all these dramatic, you know, visions. Oh, I'm going to be a lawyer. And I really thought that was it. Um, and I, I went for it, and no, it was not it. That was not it. Um, 
And so finally when I ended up in Mexico, that was a little bit more of like, I, I has, I, I hate to say it, but it, it definitely was kind of the like, well, I mean, I was finding myself, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> How old were you when you went there? I was, I think 23 or 24. So yeah. you had finished college. I finished college. I was, you know, midway through law school. Yeah. So I was in my early twenties. Yeah. And, uh, and I kind of gave myself permission to use that time in the beginning to, to explore my, you know, to take a break from the rat race. Law school's really grueling. Um, yeah. And at that point, though, I was pretty convinced. I was like, oh, I'm going to be a nonprofit youth arts educator. That was what I was doing there. And and then look at me now. But, yeah, so then how did you were like, okay, I'm going to start coding for people. I'm going to start fixing their websites. No, it didn't really start like that. It started like, you know, I went on Elance, remember, the, uh, the yeah. precursor to Upwork. <laughs> And I just started applying for any little odd job okay. that used any of the skills I had. Mm -hmm. I did a lot of writing back then. Mm -hmm. So my business name is RKA Inc. And that was because I was doing a lot of writing. And I was calling myself a copywriter, which is uh. not accurate. Uh, but at the time, <laughs> that's what I did. And I mean, I was just doing any crappy $20 job that I could find. I mean, that's the truth. Um, and what ended up happening is I, I got a couple clients. I got a couple very lucky people got me when I was as cheap as hell. And uh, I ended up doing everything for them. I, I had a, a oh life coach client in New York and I ended up, I did her website and I wrote her, helped her write her courses and I ghost wrote her blog. Wow. And I, you know, I helped her develop her materials. And I even did, speaking of acting, I even did like she was working on you know her stage presence and being on camera. I would do like vocal, you know, coaching with her. I would like really. Yeah, so we would get on Skype <laughs> and do like tongue exercises. <laughs> I mean, I could do not. I did everything, and uh, through that is when I really realized, okay, of all the things I'm doing right now, web design and marketing, that is my strength. That's what I feel like I could do all day. Mm -hmm. it, it like. Writing was like pulling teeth. I would write and it was like, oh, it would take me a long time to get it out. But <laughs> when I was designing and I was creating marketing strategies and all that good stuff, that kind of just flowed. Right. And so that's kind of when I realized this is going to be my focus. Do you think having that one client, that that lady, this is a lady? Yeah, yeah. You think that helped you boost your confidence? Because I feel like that first client that really latches on and you have that experience with, you, like you two bond, that helps a lot in establishing your business presence and like kind of who you are as an entrepreneur. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, again, it's like I didn't even realize, she really taught me a lot because she kind of told me which marketing gurus and experts mm. to follow and uh to you know to pay attention to a lot of those people now i make fun of so yeah. I'm like thank you for that <laughs> i appreciate it no really um and then it's so funny this per and so she she gave me a lot of guidance um and yeah confidence because i i did it was fun because i got to do so much for her mm -hmm. um that i got to really get my sea legs before it was me and my stuff yeah um and again that was back in the day when i was i mean she must have paid me like Peanut. I mean, she really was. Literally, I think one time she sent me a box of peanuts, yeah. and that was my payment. But you had to do that in the beginning because oh, you yeah. need to get people to buy oh, in yeah. in order to trust you, oh, and then yeah. get your sea legs. Yeah, like, absolutely. You're not worth the big bucks right away. No, I was not. I was not. I mean, you got to work for that shit. That's true. It is true. So but she still got a damn good deal. I mean, I got to oh, tell yeah. you, she did. <laughs> well, I think I everyone know. starts like extra low. Like yeah. you should start kind of low, but everyone is. And I was living in Mexico far. too, so right. the cost of living is much lower there, and so. 
I would, could afford to, and on Elance, you know, and you know how it is with Upwork and stuff like that, those types of uh, places, it's all about competing on, a lot of it yeah. is competing on price, and I could, and I was able to compete on price, but also I was an American, which, mm. yeah, with those types of things, yeah, there is, some people really are looking for a U.S.-based person or somebody that's got this fluent in several languages, mm -hmm. stuff like that, so that kind of gave me a leg up, was that I had that, and uh, and I could still be cheap as hell. So, so were you doing work in Mexico, or is all in the U.S.? It was my clients were U.S. based. Okay. So, or and and I have some I had some European clients as well. But yeah, it was it was um, I purposely and consciously did not want to compete in the local economy because I didn't want to take jobs away. Right. I didn't want to go down mm -hmm. to Mexico and then take jobs from people there. Like mm -hmm. that wasn't my that wasn't my intention. So, so yeah. And how, okay, do you speak Spanish? I do. Fluently? Yeah. Wow. <laughs> so many surprises. Like a gringa, like a gringa. <laughs> I never stopped sounding like a gringa, but. Well, yeah, I mean, that's just part of the game. But if you're fluent, so do you and your husband speak Spanish at home? We do, yeah. We, we kind of like go in and out. It's like, yeah. you start a sentence in English, you end it in Spanish, and vice right, versa. Right. Now that, you know, when I'm fighting with him, it's in Spanish, because I want him to know what the hell I'm talking about. <laughs> I want to make sure he knows what I'm saying, you know? Does he yell back in English? Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah, so that's, that's funny. Amazing. But yeah, no, we got to go back and forth. So then at what point did you move back to the States? Um, at the end of 2016, right after the election. Oh. Right after that. Wait, the end of 2016? Yeah, yeah. So you just, you've been here... A little bit over a year. Well, you're a year and a half now, I guess. You've lived in Mexico that whole time? Yeah, almost eight years. Yeah. Oh my God, for some reason I was thinking that was like a one year, like one off. Oh no, it was so a you journey. you built your entire I business did. in Mexico. Yes. Where in Mexico were you guys I was living? in Chiapas, which is the southernmost state, right in the border of Guatemala. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, and during that time we did, I did get to travel a bit. I, I spent about six months in Germany. I lived for a little bit in Guatemala. I did spend a little bit of time in Kenya. So I got to travel mm -hmm. um, while I was, but Mexico was my home base. And, wow, yeah. that's amazing. Why did you stay so long? <sighs> why I mean, did I, I love come, Mexico. The real question is why did I come back? <laughs> yeah. Why am I At here right time. now? Right. Seriously. Um, I, I, you know, I, Again, when I started my journey there, I really had this intention of being there for the rest of my life and doing the nonprofit work and working with women and girls. That was what I was doing. Um, and so the plant, that's, you know, ultimately how it all began. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, I started my business and then I met my husband and things kind of evolved. And um, But I stayed because it's freaking amazing. It's incredible. Mexico is amazing. It's, it's, yeah. it's, it was a beautiful, I lived, I mean, San Cristobal de las Casas, where I lived, is a little colonial artsy town you can walk everywhere it's in the mountains it's gorgeous it's full of color it's very international lots of people from all over the world live there uh, it's a hub for human rights mm. activism and human rights work um why is it a hub there there in 1994 there was uh, a, a big rebellion a civil war that was started in san cristobal de las casas or started in chiapas by the zapatistas mm. um which is basically like an indigenous um an indigenous kind of army. Um, and so, yeah, there was this huge uprising in 1994. And at that time, there were just a lot of atrocities being committed mm -hmm. by the government and paramilitaries. Wow. And so a big, 
people from all over the world flocked to San Cristobal basically as human rights observers to hold the government accountable, to oh shine God. a light on what was going on in Mexico and, um, you know, to, to make sure that the world was, was looking. And because with foreign eyes on the government and the police and all that kind of stuff, they stood up a little straighter. Now, mm -hmm. I'm not going to say all the horrible oh, stuff yeah. stopped, but right. it certainly, you know, helped to hold them accountable. So that's, you know, all these people ended up flooding there. That's really what created a big influx of foreign presence there. And since then, the tourist economy has grown quite a bit. And I mean, these days, it's it's very peaceful there. It's beautiful. It's And, and now it's a big tourist destination. But that's kind of how it... What do you say to people who say that going to Mexico is dangerous right now? <laughs> I wish you, you could see, see that eye roll. <laughs> um, well, I say... Uh, the, I wanted to say, I want to say fake news. That's what I wanted <laughs> to say, but that's not, that's actually not the narrative I want to uh, drive either. Um, I would say, are, is there violence in Mexico? Yes. Um, but it is isolated to to specific regions yeah. um a lot of the violence happening in mexico happens in the north or Closer at least the border the stuff that people are hearing about mm -hmm. in the news um and so it's kind of like the the difference between new york and california it's like if something crazy is happening in new york you don't avoid los angeles exactly. you know so um that's kind of what i say I, I will say that it's there is a specific narrative being pushed on the news and in the media and uh and most of the country is, I, well, what I like to say is I felt safer living in San Cristobal than I did living in Chicago, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. And did I do, I mean, in fact, when we were planning to come back here with all of the violence happening up here, yeah. the gun violence, I was scared to come home. I was like, dude, shit is crazy, right. you know? Like... I mean, I was never worried about somebody shooting me up where I lived in Mexico. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. maybe somebody has a knife, but you can run away from a knife, yeah. you know? <laughs> I don't know. But, no, I mean, even that, I never even had that in type of a situation happen. But, yeah, I, it was, I, was, I felt very, very safe where I lived, and, it, you know, and the statistics back that up. Right. Um, and, unfortunately, this is the really, this is the sad thing. Speaking back to the situation with human rights observers mm -hmm. coming in, as a white woman in Mexico, I, especially where I was living, I ended up being and feeling safer than a lot of Mexican women. Because there uh, are lots of yeah. issues with violence against women, femicide, right. women disappearing in different states, um, murder. And, and the truth is, because of the tourist economy, as a white woman, it's almost as though, you know, it's it's just it's messed up. The white that white privilege followed me mm -hmm. down to Mexico where I really shouldn't have it, but I did. You know, so well, it's a weird. It's like a weird celebrity status when you go to some smaller Mexican towns and like in some places, like especially where my dad is from, like up on the ranch. When my mom first started going there with my dad, like they didn't often see white people up there. And then they had this like blonde, curly haired little girl with oh, them. And yeah. so it's like a whole, it's a thing, but then it's not and you just move on. Yeah. But yeah, it is, I mean, yeah, it's a topic. It's very interesting. It's, it's, it's upsetting how easy it was for me to go down to Mexico. Mm -hmm. I mean, literally I just walked right in, you know, 
when the opposite is not true. Right. Um, and my husband, even my husband getting his visa coming up here yeah, what was, was a like? nightmare. It was ridiculous. And we're married and we can, you know, we've got a bona fide marriage. It's easy to, you know, <laughs> you like. You guys aren't faking it? Yeah. We did get married 365 times. So <laughs> I'm not kidding about that. Uh, that's another story for another Three, day. What? Okay. <laughs> that's more wine. Uh, yeah. Um, but no, and even, I mean, and so we, you know, fit, he, he's married to an American, we've been together for X amount of time, we've got plenty, we've got sponsors, and even under those circumstances, it was very difficult to get him, you know, documentation yeah. up here. So, how um, long did it take? About a year. Wow. About a year. Which is, and I feel I like mean, that's nothing to say. Oh, no, people, no, no, no. I sometimes mean, it takes years. Absolutely, absolutely. And if, you know, if he, if we were to try to bring in, his family now under his visa, that would take years. I, you know, when I was in law school, right before I left, I was um, focusing on immigration law and I worked in an immigration clinic for a little while. I did uh, like a, a workshop there for school. And that's one of the things that I learned was um, different countries have kind of different um, waiting times mm -hmm. for getting visas. So if you're from a country, if you're from a brown country, basically, yeah, um, your waiting time is like ten times longer than if you're from like the UK, Australia, Germany. If you're from a white country, so there, it's almost like you can walk right in in a way. And there's like no rationale behind any of that. I mean, there is rationale, and it's called racism. Well, but okay. I mean, right. like, yeah. like, not any sort of sound, no, 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 or anything. That's so I always think about like how crazy it is that I, I mean, just not even just speaking, going back to the American thing, not just Mexico, but just with a U.S. passport, how the whole world basically mm -hmm. belongs to us in a way. Mm -hmm. And yet it, the opposite is not true. So it's messed up. Messed up. So you did all of this. Did you work for the nonprofit or in that sector, like the whole time you were living there, in addition to doing your marketing? Um, or did that towards the end, of, it started to taper yeah. off. It started to taper off towards the end. So I did kind of transition into, once I met my husband and we got married, um, I started to focus a little bit more on the business. So yeah, kind of. And as you can maybe see from what, you know, some of the things I've been saying, my awareness of my presence in Mexico mm -hmm. as a white American woman shifted towards the end and I started to become more conscious of the fact that my presence was disruptive mm -hmm. that you know you go I, I didn't think that I went in with a white savior complex right. I didn't think I went down there thinking I was gonna save the world but in the end I I had that I had that chip on my shoulder and you know you because there's this story told to us as Americans that like all people around the world need is like a little bit of money or a little need, a bit of help. Go on your mission trip and like build a house in mm -hmm. Ecuador or, you know, like all they need in Africa is like, or, you know, and I hate to call Africa, uh, like you know, the example, it's but. not, it's, it's a continent full of many countries, but all they need in the continent of Africa is like some food. So like yes. drop them some like yes. wheat flour or something. And that's not it. I mean, Mexico doesn't need me. They didn't need me there. Like, and, and that's what I became more aware of the longer I was there and the more I educated myself and grew in my mm -hmm. um, awareness of these issues. And so that's part of also why I kind of dialed back my activism down there was that I was realizing, oh man, I'm, you know, being a white woman, I have to be really careful about how yeah. I, am, I am involved in these things. You know what I'm saying? Have, have you ever seen the documentary Poverty, Inc.? You know what? I have not. I think that's what it's called. But it's about, so 
to use Tom's as an example, so Tom's' whole philosophy is like buy a shoe, give a shoe. Right. But what they do is they go to these communities where they're giving the shoes and that Tom's has actually put the um, shoe companies there out of business. And mm -hmm. so now these people no longer have a livelihood. Mm -hmm. So instead of providing the structure, the infrastructure and the tools and maybe like the money for the locals to establish their own businesses, they're now like actually putting exactly. people out of business, which is not a long-term solution to the problem. Like, yes, these children have shoes and they needed them, but you could have done it a different route. So it explores that entire yeah. option about like dropping food instead of like helping people grow their own food right. or really right. investing in the communities and the right. people within those communities yeah. because they're able-bodied and minded people yeah. that can do these yeah. things. They just probably don't have the resources yeah. to do it's so and, and if they have the resources, there's systemic uh, issues, like there's, there's government uh oh yeah what am i trying to say here you know corruption mm -hmm. and i mean that's i would say like probably the biggest problem yeah around the world is the corruption in each of the different governments right. and that i mean in mexico that's that's definitely a huge problem i mean that's huge i mean it's so funny um one thing i realized one thing i observed living in mexico was how little sense of political efficacy the people have there mm -hmm. like and you know yeah, they, they don't, it, voting is so much lower there and because people don't feel that their vote really matters. Right. And, you know, politicians buy votes. I mean, it's just crazy. So, I don't know. Um, but you're, you're totally right. The Tom's example is a great example. And I've even heard about the Tom's thing that the kids that received those shoes ended up selling those shoes. Like, because they need the money or because, you yeah. know, like, or they've adapted to life without shoes. Right. You know, because in a lot of these places around the world, I mean, yeah. People don't wear shoes, you know? Yeah. So it's like, it's part of the we life. look at it and we're like, oh God, give those kids some <laughs> shoes, you know? But yeah, so so speaking of marketing, I mean, that ended up being, I mean, it was a marketing ploy. Right. And not that the person who, who founded Tom's didn't have, didn't have good intentions. And yet... There's a, another side of that story, too, like what you just said, so, yeah. Yeah, and I think it's, like, important to mention that he, he probably had good intentions, and in theory, it was, you know, when it was really small, and you're helping, like, a small community, a few kids in Africa, that's one thing, but now it's grown to the point where it's, like, a global thing, so now he has some real power behind it, and I don't know, maybe his philosophy has changed, or his... The strategy has changed. Yeah. I don't know. I don't but either. Yeah. Hopefully. <laughs> should look it up. Yeah. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> He's going to hear this and be like, yeah, yeah, well, yeah, but it's that. So the documentary is really interesting because that's what they highlight the entire time. It's like how you could be better serving these communities, which Indiro Coffee and Aurora actually employs local farmers in somewhere in Africa. I can't tell you where, but... Um, they like reached out to a group of farmers with an opportunity to do this, but now they're the government is getting in the middle because these farmers are being subsidized by Indiro and making more money than the other coffee farmers in the area, and so now they're getting some pushback. And so, and it becomes a problem for the farmers too because they're at risk now because people know that they're making more money than everybody else. Yeah, exactly. So it's not. So that's the thing. We I think often we have this perception that. These problems happening around yeah. the world just need a little bit of, a little bit of money, a little bit of help. Just a well-meaning white woman, you know, <laughs> come down and help me out. No, it's not that. And I think that also, um, 
I think the problem with that mentality is it also doesn't give credit to the people as if they're not fighting their own battles. Right. You know, and so that's one thing as well. You know, there's so much energy um, in the activism in Mexico. You know, there's so much amazing work being done. Mm -hmm. It's not that people aren't doing this work and all over the world. Right. You know, right. And, you know, when we were in Kenya, you know, and we spent time there, there is so much work being done on the ground by the, by the Kenyan people. Yeah. Um, it's not a matter of just a few more bodies or a few more like well-intentioned people. It's, it's so much more entrenched than that. So, anyway. So, okay, so what is your suggestion for getting involved if you're a white woman who wants to give back or help or... You know, I would say it's all about developing... So, there's a lot of um, organizations that kind of prey on this desire to give back or, you know, mm -hmm. poverty tourism, you've got right. like volunteer programs that people spend thousands of dollars to go do and they go for a week or a month or a year or whatever. And, build, yeah. and really the money they're spending doesn't go to the communities mm -hmm. they're serving. And, and it actually these, a lot of those programs are actually money-making schemes. Um, and so I had the good fortune when I went down that, well, here's the crazy thing. When I first went down to Mexico, I had a, an internship. And my organization that I was supposed to work with fell through. So I had money. I had a stipend. Um, and I had no organization. So I had to find a new organization. And so when I down there? Yeah. So I had to, this was like trial by fire. It was the best thing that could have happened because I had to meet people and talk to them and develop relationships and, you know, connect with this person who knows that person who knows this person to find organizations that I could hook up with. So wow. I ended up finding, um, I ended up finding, so speaking of, I was in law school and I ended up back in the theater because I found this indigenous women's theater group. Oh my God. That they're using theater as a tool for uh, education, popular education, and uh, you know, as a tool for for uh, revolts and yeah. yeah, and and educate education, but more than education. So I ended up at this Indigenous Women's Theater Group, and actually, would you believe it? One of the things I did that summer is I taught them web design. So what? <laughs> so and that was before I started my business. That was before I had any idea about what was going to happen. Anyway. So I made these relationships, and then when I went back to live there, um, actually it was funny, I was sitting in a local cafe one night singing, uh, you know, ballads along with a, a local trovador, and a woman there invited me to have a shot of tequila, and we got to talking, and she turns out she's an English teacher, she's a local Mexican woman who was an English teacher in a community out in the Mexican Highlands, and she invited me to go out to be a practice partner with her kids. And that's ended up opening the door to, we started a little theater troupe with what? the girls there. That's really what I ended up spending my time doing, was I would go out to the mountains to this little high school that had just been built. Oh my god! And we did theater work. And again, I, you know, theater as a tool for social change, as a, social, mm -hmm. a tool for education. And because of this connection I had with this women's group in uh, San Cristobal, they had plays written in the indigenous languages in Seltzal and Sotzil. Wow. So I was able to take those plays up there and we were able to do these plays with the girls. Instead of, because what am I going to do, bring Shakespeare up there? Right. <laughs> Into the highlands? Like, you know, this has no application to their lives. So, so I say all this to say, you know, was my time there, you know, I did I, you know, was it disruptive? Yes. As a white woman doing this work, it's, it's almost impossible to do it without making mistakes because, you know, in the United States, 
you you know white people are racist whether they want to be or not mm -hmm. do you know what i'm saying mm -hmm. we're raised all that stuff i'm getting really deep here but um i we think more wine. i think the relationships that i created uh, with people allowed the work that I was doing to be as meaningful as it could be. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Well, so, I feel like you really got to know the community and you got involved in the community. Yes, and that's also part of it. It's not you. It's it's hard to go somewhere for a week or a month or even a year and make an impact. You know, you have to know, you have to build trust. You have to build relationships. You have to be there. You right. have to understand how the community works. You have to understand the dynamics. You have to involve, get yourself, we be weaved into the fabric of that place. Yeah. And that doesn't happen in a three month, you know, summer and trip. And you were on you your know? own yeah. doing that? Yes, I was. And I feel like it's easier to integrate yourself into a community when you're by yourself versus mm -hmm. like, okay, there's 12 of us and we're going to hang out with each other. And we're, even when well, you go on yeah, vacation anywhere. Yeah. 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 Or if you, I was going to say, if you take a cruise. I have a whole thing about cruises. <laughs> I hate cruises. I hate that people take cruises and they say that they're traveling. Like you're just you're on a big boat. It's nice. It's nice. I'm not knocking it. Like I'm sure it's very relaxing, but you're not exploring oh these ports oh that you're God. putting your toe on. It's the same. I think the same theory applies. Like you really have to get off the boat and like integrate yourself yeah. into the community and get lost and yeah. be afraid mm -hmm. and yeah. be uncomfortable. Absolutely, that All these is things it. that yes. people don't want to explore in themselves. That should be a poem. Get lost, be afraid, get uncomfortable. <laughs> I want to like write that. I want that could be like a inspirational poster. Right <laughs> yeah. Maybe somebody will start like making memes of my podcast. I don't know. I think there's one person in China that listens. So Jenna, can you make a meme, please? <laughs> meme it. Yep. So, <clears throat> okay. But how did you start making these awkward videos? We haven't even. Damn, talked that about. is a leap. <laughs> I know. I'm just <laughs> so then the awkward. You were in videos. a theater troupe. Well, yeah. So when I, I, I will say so when I came back to the states. Um, it, it opened up some new doors for me because I like to say starting my business in Mexico was like kind of start like training in high altitude. Mm. Um, because I mean, the internet there is super slow. Uh, yeah. If something goes wrong with your equipment, it's not easy where I was living. It's not like there was an Apple store down the block, you know, you know, you're, you're, it, and so it was, it was tough there. And okay. Mail can't it would take six months for somebody to get to me oh i would get God. like i would get wedding invitations in the mail after the wedding had taken oh, place you geez. know and so coming back to the states it, it opened some new doors in terms of what i was able to do with my business it was really cool and i think it was crazy because i can't believe i had never thought about it before but you know i've got this theater background mm -hmm. um why was i not using theater it at as part of my content as mm -hmm. part of the way that i discuss marketing because and so it kind of, um, I started last year doing Facebook live videos, mm -hmm. just committed to doing a weekly Facebook live video. And during, over the course of that, um, kind of came out of my shell a little bit on camera. I did a couple live Facebook live musicals. <laughs> Wait, by yourself? Oh yeah, baby. This is amazing. One woman. Were you drinking? Musicals. I was not drinking. Uh, I drank afterwards, but no, I did some Facebook <laughs> live. And those went off really well. 
And were they people receptive? Did you already have a built-in audience? No, that's how I built my audience okay. was doing these videos, and and the musicals really helped. I mean, that was because who's done a fake? Who did? So my first one was called Facebook Live the Musical, and it was like set to the music of Joseph and the Amazing Dream Coat. <laughs> I was in that play. And get well, then you would enjoy this musical. And uh, yeah, it was, a, yeah. it was a musical about marketing. But and then in October, I decided. Wait, hold on. Did you plan these? Well, yeah, it wasn't a it wasn't a spontaneous. It wasn't. Well, like, did you have costume changes? And, and yeah. how long was it? I mean, the musical was about it was about thirty minutes. All on Facebook Live. Oh yeah, it was live. Did you have people tuned in? Where they commented? people? To oh yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> For the musicals especially, people totally tuned in. Yeah, yeah. That's this how I did amazing. it. Amazing. Yeah. Okay. So that kind of went off, and so in October for Halloween, I decided. Oh, for Halloween, I'm going to dress up. And I'm, so for Halloween, I did, this is when uh, the awkward marketing, as you know, it's Dave kind of was born every day of the week of the week leading up to Halloween. I um, had another, a video where I was a different awkward marketer. I had the top five mm -hmm. awkward marketers, different personas like Brad, the braggy bro, who's like, no. hey, I'll make you a thousand dollars in a minute. You know, like <laughs> I got the six, you know, I got the secrets to success, like that guy. And you know. I had, speaking of white people, I had Cassandra, the cultural appropriator, mm. bringing in, like, you know, namaste, you know, like, <laughs> bringing in cultural, you know, traditions from all over the world to sell her high-level coaching program for oh, white women, you yeah, know. For, like, thousands of dollars. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I just did, every day of the week, I did a different awkward marketer, and then I did voting, you know, you had to vote for your favorite, and... Oh, and cool. then I, I did a raffle, people won money, people won marketing sessions with me, and... And so that was the first time I had done that, and that, people loved it. That was it. And I'm like, why am I not doing it? Why is this not my content? And you loved it, right? And, I, and it was, I mean, I, yeah. I loved it. It was amazing. <laughs> and I, what was fun about it is being able to um, not just talk about marketing and talk about these concepts, but bring them to life. Right. Because you can only talk about something so much. And, you know, being able to embody it and act it out and become these characters. I got a green screen. I got costumes. Did you do you know? this all at home? And, uh, yes, I got a little studio in my basement. Oh, got my a little, gosh. Got a little, you know. And uh, so then I decided for, for the second season of Awkward Marketing, we were going to go off of Facebook Live and, and do a pre-recorded show so that I could do all these costumes mm -hmm. and do all these characters. And, and that's how it started. And it's just, you know... And it's a way to have fun with it because marketing can be like so oh my God. stressful and dry and, and overwhelming like, and like take itself too seriously. Yes. It's like everybody's like, ah, and all this jargon that yes. no one else knows what it means. Let's just make fun of it a little. Let's have some fun, yes. damn it. It can be fun. It is fun. Yeah, absolutely. So, so what do you think you tapped into with your videos? Is it like your characters? Is that what's what people caught on to? Is it the fact that you're well, making fun of marketing? Yes, 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 yes. So I think it's it's all of those things. I mean, we're having fun. It's it's comedy. It's making fun of the stuff that is all over the. You know, like every I try to tap into stuff that you know everyone's complaining about or right. people are you know um, thinking but they're not saying. Right. You know? So I think that yes, the fact that it's making fun of marketing, the fact that it's tapping into people's pain points. Yes. People's uncomfortable because you know awkward marketing is there's there's so many ways that you can kind of jump off of that title, you know, um, marketing is awkward, especially small business owners. I work with small business owners. Mm -hmm. I work with a lot of solopreneurs, yeah. thought leaders that feel uncomfortable being so visible. I mean, mm -hmm. we're in the age of like 
you know, you everyone's a star of their own, you know. It's over curated. Yeah, that's what bothers me about it. So, so marketing is it can be awkward and uncomfortable to market yourself yeah. and to promote yourself. Um, and then on the other side of it, there's a lot of awkward marketing that exists out there in terms of like weird, shitty, shady, crazy stuff yeah. that people are doing. So it's kind of both of those things. It's tapping into the fact that people feel uncomfortable marketing themselves and also making fun of all of the crappy marketing that exists mm. out there. Um, and that is what I think people love. And yeah, it's funny. I, it, I think it's hard. It's really hard with content to be entertaining. Mm -hmm. And I, I'm knocking, like, give me some wood over here. <laughs> no. Oh my God, where's some wood? Because I don't, brick. whatever, I, I believe in myself. Oh. Here we go, there's some wood, I found some wood. But it's hard in content Whatever to I believe on myself is also gonna go on my <laughs> But it's hard to be entertaining and informative at the same time. Yeah. That's kind of like the, the marketing and content jackpot. And I can't believe it took me so long to realize, oh crap, I can just be ridiculous on camera, what a lot of people don't want to do. I mean, and here's the thing, there's so many marketers out there who are like really informative and really educational <laughs> or like really, I don't know. But it's I mean, so fucking boring. Exactly. Like, nobody cares. But they're doing that. But I mean, you know, people do well, care. Well, people do care. But it's but being I don't. done. It's, yeah. it's being done and I'm not going to do it better. No. Right. You know? So what can I do? I can be a wild, I can be crazy, I can be funny, I can be, in, and that's how I educate you know it, and that's how I innovate on the topics that have been done to death right in a very dry educational way so yeah I feel like that's kind of found my sweet and I'm like dude I feel excited because I left theater behind I didn't mm -hmm. think I was gonna have that in my life anymore I, I wanted to, you know I'm, I'm, I haven't been an actor for years right. and so going back to what I said at the beginning you know I left the theater world because I didn't have creative agency and I felt like I couldn't I wasn't using my brain. I wasn't using, and now I get to bring it all back, and I am, you know, using all my. I'm using, you know, I'm the director. I'm the writer. I'm the actor. I'm the everything. You know. I think what's most important about that is like it's 100% true to who you are and your personality. You're not trying to fit yourself into the boring marketer or the. I mean, and it's just not dry. And you can hang out with you for five minutes and realize like what you're doing in your videos is exactly who you are in real life too. How she about like, that? wants to be on the podcast too. Yes. My little girl is right here trying to she's like, Hey, ask me a question. Hey Ask me a question. She's ready. She is ready for her close up. This is this is audio girl. There's no close ups <laughs> in, in podcasting. That's why we do it this way. Yeah. How long have we been doing this? <laughs> 46 minutes. 46 minutes. How about that? I don't, I mean, we have really covered the gamut. Here. We have. We've run it. We've walked it. We've <laughs> circled it. The gamut has been explored. Um, is there anything else you want to explore? I think, I don't, I don't know. know. I feel like this has been life-changing. <laughs> Has it? Whoever's listening to this is probably crying, they're laughing. They're, <laughs> yeah. they're they like, learned something. They learned something. To inform and inspire. Exactly. I think that's what I said in my own description of this. How about that? How that's about the that? Point. The point is there's just different ways to market. So you have yeah. to figure out, have you ever said no to a client before? Oh yeah. And I'm getting better at it every every day. My, I will be more, the more I say no, the more successful I become. That's mm -hmm. the truth. That is the truth. But how, and, uh, yeah. how do you convey that to the people you work with? 
the small business owners that want a paycheck or need a paycheck. I mean, how do I teach them to say no? Yeah. I mean, every time you say no, you're saying yes to something else, oh, you know, and every time you say yes, you're saying no to something else, you know, information. yeah, I mean, so I've learned over the last few years that, you know, I've developed policies that I, in my business. And every time I buck those, every time I defy a rule I've implemented, I pay mm. twofold, right? So every time I say yes to someone that I know deep down as I should say no to, I end up paying for that client. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. It's like, it's a cost to right. my business. And so I think that's one thing. You, oh, <laughs> you do, you do want to say something. I think that is one thing. Um, that's how I can really teach small business owners to, to say no when they're really right. looking out for that paycheck is, you're looking, the money that you're making now is actually going to, it's like a, it's like a loan shark, right. you know, like the interest is going to be, is going to double you. You're actually going to lose money this way. You know what I'm and saying? You're going to probably spend more time with that person because you don't want to be like working with them. There's so many other things that are going to happen when you should have said no. Exactly. Exactly. That's my baby, and that's my, and that's my boot, too, is what it is. Maybe this is a good place to this end it. This is a good it. place, I think. Yeah. All right. Thanks for being here. Thank you. She's